practicing in the West or in non-Buddhist countries, there'll be from time to time people come, often uninvited, and ask you why you're a monk and what's the purpose of it. Sometimes they can be quite challenging because they don't understand what we're doing. Say things like, what are you, what good are you doing for society? Are you doing anything productive? Some people probably will never understand this lifestyle or the Buddhist teachings. We have to accept that. Everyone has their own karma. Other people, when you explain, maybe it gives them some insight. Maybe they open up a bit. It depends on each person where their karma is. Sometimes they might have perceptions based on obviously on their own cultural conditioning and background. Maybe they've heard Buddhist monks are arms mendicants. We don't have money. We're dependent on charity and people's goodwill to survive. So some people are immediately critical of that even though they probably haven't really thought about it and don't really understand how the whole thing works. They just have an immediate reaction and maybe we're just freeloaders or lazy or can't be bothered to do anything else, just want a free meal, that kind of thing. Of course, when we practice Keeping the Vinaya, Zajan Chah, reminded us over and over again we keep a very high level of sila, meaning we have a great sense of personal integrity. So all the support we receive as monks is actually unasked for and requested. Unless people give us an invitation and say, what do you need? Is there anything I can help you with? We can't ask people for anything. We can't bother people. So that's a bit different from being, say, beggars or some kind of burden on the world. It's a very subtle point. So often non-Buddhists don't understand this. Even Buddhists who haven't been monks might find it hard to understand. When we ordain, we take on that commitment to live perhaps very simply. Our aim is to practice for Nibbana, but the requisites we're allowed, or you might say entitled to, are actually absolute basic minimum. Alms food, which is whatever leftover food people are willing to share with us, unasked for. Rag robes, maybe even from a rubbish tip or off a corpse, 
the foot of a tree or a cave or an overhang for dwelling, fermented urine for medicine. And we're fortunate these days that nearly always there's more than that available. The world is wealthy and the Buddhist community are very generous so we don't have to go without very often. Still, there'll always be times when you don't get exactly what you want or maybe there's something you need but there's just no opportunity to receive it or get attain it. But generally, we're well supported. But it's an attitude thing. It's what lies behind your actions and your lifestyle that we reflect on. We're not actually asking anybody for anything. We don't advertise. We don't go out seeking, uh, trying to attract people's attention, say, I need this, I need that. We're just determined to keep the Vinaya and the precepts and practice, developing mindfulness and developing wisdom for the ending of suffering. That's our intention, and we keep reinforcing that intention as we practice. Some people come to understand and see that and understand the benefit of that and see it is very useful to have that opportunity in the world and they're willing to support that. So that's how we can live. Other people might never understand the value of such a, a thing, practicing for enlightenment, for the end of suffering. They just don't understand and they perhaps in this lifetime will never understand. We have to accept that. Even for ourselves, sometimes we understand what we're doing, sometimes we lose track. Practice is an ongoing thing. And we have to keep re-establishing our commitment and reminding ourselves why we're doing it and what we're doing. And the basics of our daily life, the practice of the Vinaya, the training that we undertake, we're using the Brahma Vihara Dhammas as a framework for our behavior, our reflections, how to live with each other as a monastic community and then also with the world around us. So even if people don't understand what we're doing, we can still have goodwill for them wish them well. As Ajahn Mahabhur says, when you practice metta for others, you're developing a, a sense of seeing them like a relative. There's a certain warmth towards others, understanding that we're all in the same boat. We're all subject to birth, old age, sickness and death. We all want to be happy and we all despise suffering. We're related in that way, all members of the world, whatever, whatever our gender, our background, culture, race. And that's our basic perception. Say, living in the Sangha, we develop a sense we're living as brothers. You know, Christian monks, they call themselves brothers. But we're developing that same perception. We're as if part of a family whether we have the same 
interests and habits, likes and dislikes, we at least have a sense of being related. We have a, a similar goal, similar standard of sila and practice, so we have, we're related in that way. So the older monks are like maybe our parents or uncles, similar aged monks are maybe like our brothers, very young junior monks if we're older, maybe they're like our younger brothers or even our children could be. And that same attitude spreads out as we engage with the lay, laity. So they're like relatives. So the men and women who come here, the older ones are like parents or grandparents. Others are like brothers, sisters. Others are even maybe like our children. As a perception, that's what we're developing. It's just a sense of being related so that we have that tolerance and kindness towards each other. A very skillful way to help erode away some of our own selfishness, some of our own anger and ill will that naturally comes up from time to time. So it's an ongoing practice as well, developing metta, karuna, for the others in this world that we live with. Even animals, Ajahn Chah used to say, would walk around the monastery, sometimes even display his kindness for animals. Just say, oh, watch out. He'd see a line of ants and say, watch out, somebody might step on you. Move off the path, then you won't get squashed. Or he'd see some birds or a squirrel and say, oh, watch out, there's hunters around actually talk to them sometimes out of pure compassion so whether it's humans or animals these are the attitudes we're developing so that we can at least be together in the monastery with a certain sense of goodwill to each other even if we sometimes have misunderstandings or difficulties Of course, the effect on the mind is keeps the mind fairly free from a lot of struggle, living with others, rivalries, jealousies, and conflicts, doubts about each other, and so on. When we practice metta karuna over a long period of time, we gradually develop a sense of trust for the ones around us. Even if somebody's, you meet somebody, maybe a lay person whose is not very good, one is still developing a sense of goodwill for them or even compassion if we see that they're doing things that harm themselves. Develop mudita for each other again for just having that aspiration for enlightenment and willing to practice. If we've been through difficulty, well, we can appreciate others go through difficulty. So we have mudita for all their efforts, sense of appreciation for the efforts of the other Sangha members who live with us, 
for ourselves even, and for the laity who are practicing and sacrificing time, energy to support the monastery and also their own efforts in their own practice. And practice mudita for others, and then also develop upeka, understanding we're all the owners of our own karma. Ultimately, whatever happens to us is the fruits of our own karma. We are related, we have certain karmic involvement with each other. So in a way, we we have karma is we're related through our karma. We have karma with families, friends, fellow monastics, lay supporters and so on. But ultimately, each one of us is responsible for our own individual karma. So we have to accept that. Some people understand the practice, some don't. Some people are supportive, some are not. Some are very advanced in their practice, some are not. And so on. And this underlies just our basic daily life, the attitudes, how we develop skillful attitudes towards each other and toward the the people of the world around us. We always have to come back to Upeka just to help ground us in wisdom. It helps to balance the other three Brahma-viharas as well. You practice metta, you practice goodwill doesn't mean to say you practice goodwill for someone that they're necessarily going to reciprocate, give it back to you or appreciate your efforts. But just because somebody else doesn't return the goodwill or they appreciate what we're doing doesn't diminish the goodwill that we're practicing. It's just something to know and something to accept with upeka. When we don't understand this point, sometimes we might get disappointed. We do think, maybe you do a favor for somebody, or you help somebody, and then later on there's a situation where you might need some help, but they don't come forward to help you. If you feel disappointed, it means you haven't really understood this point. Maybe you say, that person, they should be appreciative of me. I helped them before, now they should come and help me. But that's misunderstanding, and that's not understanding karma and upeka. The good that you did, if you did help somebody, it's still good. It was the right thing to do. What they do is their own response, they have to be responsible for that. And they'll have to receive the results of that if they neglect or they're selfish or unkind in some way. Well, that's their, their responsibility, their karma. We practice metta and karuna, we don't practice expecting anything return. If we're practicing it well, is the way the Buddha encouraged it. Unconditional metta, karuna, mudita, upeka. So we do good, or try to do good. We have an attitude, maybe, what can I do to help? In the monastery we develop a sense of helping out, helping each other helping the Sangha, helping the laity, helping the monastery as a whole. But it's not seeking anything return. We're doing it because it's wholesome. It's countering our own 
anger, selfishness. It's, if there's an opportunity to help to do something good that arises, then we might take it. But it's not something we're doing seeking anything in return. If you practice understanding this, then you don't get disappointed if you, then later on something unfortunate happens to you or somebody doesn't treat you well, you don't get upset and give up practicing metta or blame the Buddha. So this teaching on karma and metta isn't really true. Like some people do, they say, oh, you do good things, but then you get bad results. So karma isn't true. You end up falling into wrong views simply because they haven't looked more deeply and seen mm, it's actually they're still lacking new paper to deal with the fact that karma everyone is the owner of their own karma the good you do is good always you will receive the good results of that but it doesn't mean to say somebody else who's involved will necessarily treat you well or be good back to you all the time but they have to deal with that and they'll have to deal with the karmic consequences of that. It's very important to develop this practice of the Brahma-viharas. It's our Vinaya training, it's based on this living simply, developing compassion, sensitivity to others living in a way where we don't harm others or burden others, more developing a sense of help, sharing, supporting, respecting others. We develop this and this is the fertile ground for deepening meditation. It makes meditation go much smoother if we've been developing the Brahma-viharas in our daily life. When you come to sit meditation or walk meditation, there's not too much confusion or strong negative emotions coming up in the mind, not too many reactions, or if they come up and they pass quickly, the mind settles down more, more easily through the practice of Brahma-viharas in daily life. So they're certainly not at odds with the monastic lifestyle, the development of meditation, samadhi, insight, and they're supportive. Practicing the Brahmaviharas, we're already letting go of hindrances, transcending hindrances, letting go of hindrances, letting go of self, self-centeredness, selfishness, letting go of anger, ill will, jealousy, hatred and developing very positive qualities in their place developing goodwill, appreciation of each other appreciation of the good that we do, that others do and so on all this gives its karmic consequence when we, start, when we meditate we start to establish mindfulness the mind is brighter already it settles easier, it's easier to let go of negativity that arises or has arisen, easier to concentrate. So when we start to concentrate on a barigama, buddho, the breath, recollection of death or the body and so on, the mind tends to stick with it longer, easier.
doesn't make it absolutely easy, but it makes it easier because we have a foundation grounded in right view, right thought, right action and so on. You develop that perception of other people being like relatives, you know, it counters both anger, ill will and lust, particularly towards females. You see them as sisters or daughters or mothers, depending on their age. It's easy just to wish them well and then let go, not think too much about them. Then one can develop more sustained concentration without the mind keep dropping off into fantasies or memories, wishing for things, planning for things, thinking of old girlfriends, thinking of new girlfriends. Brahma Viharas support us in all aspects of the practice. And that delighting in an aversion for the world that the bhikkhu sets aside as he sets up mindfulness on the in and out breath. The Brahma Viharas have already been helping us to counter that from the word go. Even if we weren't sitting or walking meditation, we've been developing that in daily life. Then we have to practice refining mindfulness using the meditation object just to bring that refinement of mindfulness where sustaining the meditation object for longer periods, dropping distracting thoughts, dropping the mental proliferation, picking up more quickly when we are falling into moods, daydreams, sleepiness and so on, the different hindrances that come up. As we keep practicing, that's where we put our effort, wearier, really is the effort to establish mindfulness. We have satar first, we have faith to practice, we have an interest to practice, we have a, a wish to deepen our understanding of the teachings to free our minds from suffering. That leads to effort. And that effort is directed to establishing mindfulness over and over again. Often a bit repetitive, so it requires a lot of patience as well, patient effort, repetitive, persistent effort, being willing to do it over and over again. But the fruits are very worthwhile. It's gradually heightening or more refining our awareness, little by little, climbing up the mountain becoming sharper as we turn our attention inwards using the Barikama meditation more and more. You become to pick up your reactions where the Sankara Dhammas are proliferating out of the mind based on sense contact, feelings, pleasure and pain, memories, and then the thought formations that keep popping out of the mind. You know, where are they coming from? Basically, they're coming from a lack of mindfulness, a lack of wisdom. The mind keeps grasping hold of things, believing in things, 
grasping at things. The more we establish mindfulness on our meditation object, the more we are keeping mindfulness in different postures through our day, then the more we are keeping in touch with that. Every mood, every reaction, uh, we naturally start to become more composed, checking ourselves, watching the mind. That becomes just as important as anything else. Our other duties, involvement with other people, or just different things that we're doing. We also become much more clearer in our own minds, in the mind of the awakened one, awake, aware, awake, radiant. The quality of mindfulness starts to come up more and more, so it becomes more prominent in our awareness. Naturally, without even trying very hard, we start to see the impermanence of our own moods and reactions to things, the impermanence of our desires or the frustration of our desires, seeking distraction. Whether we have desires that are not getting satisfied or we have the chance to satisfy certain desires for things like food or drink or rest or distraction into books or talking or whatever, but just becoming more and more mindful, we're noticing the impermanence of the things that keep holding the mind's attention, keep leading the mind to move into distraction and get caught into different moods, reactions of pleasure and displeasure. In the end, we're seeing more and more quite naturally, quite automatically, the mind can't help but notice the impermanent nature of our experience. Sense contact, every little and every form of sense contact in the end is just that sense contact, the objects, the feeling, the reaction, arising, passing away, however refined or coarse, near or far, superior, inferior, internal, external, pleasant, unpleasant, they arise, they pass away, just that much. It's not certain, not very certain. Your pleasure can be very fleeting or it can last a while, but it can change and turn into pain or displeasure or just dullness very easily. And that can turn back into pleasure very easily again. Our moods and mental states very uncertain. But the practice of mindfulness over and over again is showing us that so we don't have to get too caught up in it all. Don't have to take it too seriously, too personally. We just understand with our reflection on on karma and bringing the mind to upeka. And this is just old karmic reactions. These habits I have: wanting things, not wanting things, liking things, disliking things. The more we develop mindfulness and reflect more deeply inwardly, we see that. We can't help but start to get tired of the world and all the world has on offer. Sometimes the experiences we have are pleasant, sometimes they're not, but in the end they're just that much. They just arise, pass away, just things to be known for what they are.
is we do practice if we not sure where to really develop deepen our insight then always come back to the body physical body just keep running through the 32 parts the four elements visualizing them familiarize yourself with each of the 32 parts where they are what they look like learn to keep be able to keep your attention on your own body within the body moving down say from the crown of the head the hair of the head hair of the body nails teeth skin going under the skin but stopping at each body part really investigating it you have to begin with our memory and just thinking about it we visualize it taking the skin off and Yamahabo always says oh, taking the skin off is the most difficult part of body contemplation but perhaps the most fruitful as if unwrap the skin and just if you're ever lucky enough to go to an autopsy or you see a anatomy book you think how thin the skin is just a very thin layer covering over the body outer layer of dead cells and an inner layer of live cells very very thin if you see an autopsy or even an operation where they, they use a scalpel and just open up the skin it just parts very easily like paper or plastic And open up a whole new world inside. Or when somebody dies, when we die, what will our skin feel like? Mm -hmm. The difference between warm, attractive, pleasant skin with warm flesh inside, pleasantly colored and so on. And then the corpse, dead skin. If you've never touched a corpse, maybe you've touched a, a slab of meat. If you've ever been to the butcher before when you were a lay person, you bought a leg of lamb or a piece of meat or something, chicken. You know, that white, pale white skin. You press it and the mark just stays there. You can mold the skin into different shapes because it's cold, stiff, lifeless. Or you could just easily peel the skin off, a piece of meat from the butcher. And human beings, just the same when they're dead. It's cold, stiff, compress it and make marks. Once the body starts to decompose, it becomes soft underneath with liquid of the degeneration, the decay of the body and the rotting nature of a body skin just keep contemplating skin in its nature it's not going to last forever even while we're alive if skin on our feet becomes dry and hard it flakes off get cracks in it cracks go right through to the soft alive skin underneath so it becomes painful
skin changes colour, the corpse changes colour, goes blotchy and dark, green and blue. It smells. Nobody can escape the smell of skin because it keeps sweating and you get grease in it, gets dirt. Anybody, man, woman, young, old, the skin starts to smell over time unless we wash. And a corpse even more so, foul smelling. All the senses become overwhelmed. If you're with a corpse for very long, it's very unpleasant. It looks awful, it smells awful. Touch is unpleasant. I would imagine the taste was unpleasant. Never tasted one. All the senses turned off. Really, that's the nature of it. We, when a body is alive, it seems attractive and alluring to the senses. When it's dead, it's the opposite. It's repulsive. We don't want it. Nobody wants a corpse. Even the corpse of someone you love, you don't want the corpse. That's the nature of the sensual realm we live in. Just caught swinging between pleasure and pain, delighting in aversion to. This is something we can reflect on, establish peace in the mind, calm, mindful state, and then just keep reflecting on this, going through the parts of the body. The breaking down of a corpse back to earth, back to the elements drying out as the water element leaves. Cooling down goes cold as the fire element leaves. Back to the earth. This body that we get so obsessed and attracted to and caught up in and take as mine, we keep challenging that view, that belief, that this is me, mine, myself, contemplating in this way. Sometimes, if the mind gets really still, then a nimitta or vision might arise of some part of the body, or the body as a corpse, or in old age, or as a corpse. Ukaha nimitta. When the hindrances drop away and the mind just goes still and quiet, maybe a visual image comes up, and we just hold that in our mind, in our mind's eye. And that ukaha nimitta, that vision, is holding our attention enough, the mind is quieted enough just to examine that image it makes a very deep impression on the mind. It's teaching the mind something. At that time, the mind doesn't go into attraction or aversion, doesn't fall asleep, it's awake, it's radiant. So it's the best position to learn truth the Anicca Dukkha Anatta of these five khandhas, and particularly the Rupa Khanda, if that image arises, even if it's only for a short while, makes a very strong impression on the mind. Maybe so strong you might be able to return to it another time, bring it up again, hold on to it, keep it, sustain it in your mind's eye. Or sometimes you might be able to deepen your reflection on it, actually examine it, look at it from different angles. Maybe even in itself, if the mind is very, very peaceful and insight is very clear, maybe the image itself teaches the mind, 
one just observes it, looking on, witnessing it, teaches you what happens to the body as it ages, as it breaks apart and decays. Maybe that image breaks down into the 32 parts to break apart as a corpse wood and then down into the elements. Maybe it gathers together again, forms another human being, maybe the same human being back again. And you break down to a skeleton, then it breaks, it completes itself again, the organs return, the skin covers over again, the sense of life comes back, and you've got a human being again, all in one image, just observing it break down and then come back again and then break down again that's sangsara isn't it we've been born got old got sick and died over and over again and the nature is the very nature of the rupa kanda to do that to decay to arise and pass away whatever is subject to arising is subject to cessation this is what the Tathagata teaches us. Maybe you have some vision, some insight that just is just showing you that. You're witnessing that in a very peaceful way that makes a very deep impression on the mind. And if you practice like that regularly, often, it becomes very normal for you to see like that. You see a person, man, woman, young, old, and you see them, they're bound, they're heading for decay, that body, that person. When they decay, they reach their death. When the jitter goes on, maybe there'll be life again, birth again, another body forms and grows, and then decay again. That's sangsara, seeing the endless round of birth and death, arising, cessation, over and over again, for ourselves, for others. That's the nature of the universe. That's why they call these the universal characteristics and each dukkha anatta. Because they apply to everything in the universe. All sankharas, sabbe sankhara anicca, sabbe sankhara dukkha, they're bound to degeneration, bound to dukkha, bound to break apart, difficult to be with. Sabbe dhamma anatta. No self in any of it. That's the highest upeka. We have the upeka of the Brahma Viharas that we develop just in daily life, reflecting on karma, our karma, others' karma. Upeka of Indriya Sangwara, just learning to be more balanced, more calm towards sense contact, pleasant, unpleasant, keeping the mind calm, balanced, equanimous. The opaque of one-pointedness, where we refine our mindfulness to overcome the hindrances. And the opaque of wisdom, insight, even towards all phenomena, physical, mental, learning to just see phenomena as they are, or see a phenomena, an object as it is, Anicca Anatta. That's 
state of mind where we don't add anything on to our experience, we don't create anything out of our experience. The mind is just knowing things just the way they are. And this is what silences all the proliferation, all the distraction, all the wanting, looking for, seeking, worrying about, trying to get things and then the frustration of it all. This is what quietens it down, seeing an Ichadukha Anatta in our experience, knowing it, not just on the intellect, but knowing it with the heart itself, the mind has taught itself to the point where it's just knowing an Ichadukha Anatta, so it doesn't just believe things anymore, it doesn't even believe in, in Ichadukha Anatta as a kind of a something, a theory to believe in. It's more just witnessing, knowing it. When we see it like that, then the mind's happy to give up things, give up things that formerly it used to grasp at. No need to hold on to anything, because it's all in each dukkha anatta. Obviously in this world there'll be some people, many people who don't yet realize this. You have to accept everybody's at a different stage in their life, in their development, personal understanding, spiritual understanding. The Buddha himself, he didn't teach the Four Noble Truths to everybody straight off. Sometimes he just be, encouraged people to practice dhāna keep the precepts, develop mindfulness in daily life just for peace, happiness in the here and now. Maybe later on when they're more ready, more suited, he did teach them the Four Noble Truths, teach them about dispassion, disenchantment with the world, the limitations of this world. Some people are not yet ready to see that or accept that. They'd actually argue with you. There's no point arguing over these things. Fortunately, we've been born in a time where there are Arahants and Aryapugalas still in the world that can pass on this way of training and these insights that they've had give us the encouragement for ourselves to keep practicing, that it's not a waste of time, that it's not a deluded path. It's a true path. So I'll leave you with these thoughts to contemplate tonight.